Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Ad Week podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks, David. Thank you for joining us. As always, also back frequent guest and producer on the podcast, Christina Monlos, a branding reporter for Adweek. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. And a, I think first time, Charles, is this your first time on? It is. All right. Charles Getz, our social editor uh, who runs our social media accounts and a bunch of other random tasks at uh, Adweek. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Should be fun. Thanks. Happy to be here. I, I was hoping to have like some sound effects, maybe air horns or like lasers, but I didn't have enough time. So maybe we'll just have Kevin put those in and post. <laughs> I, li- I like the fact that like lasers have it. <laughs> I like that lasers have a sound. You know, it's like, cause I know what you mean when you say that, but they really shouldn't like lasers should be silent. Right. I just, I just like the podcast to be like, like a soca club in Miami. DJs turn it up. That's just me. Just taking it in a different direction. Well, we'll drop the bass seven minutes into this podcast. Perfect. That's how long. All right. Um, so today we've got uh, several fun things to talk about. We've got some some big news that has been happening over the week in the marketing and technology worlds. And we're also going to talk about our mobile issue that we put out every year. Uh, this year, we had Pokemon Go on the cover, um, believe it or not. They are uh, making a comeback. If you have not used it in a while, we're going to be talking about why maybe you should. And uh, talk about our chat with the CEO of Niantic that puts out Pokemon Go. Uh, and we're also going to talk about some big influencers in the mobile space and some other trends in terms of devices. So it should be a very fun conversation. Uh, and as always, Tim has gathered up the ads worth watching this week. Uh, so always fun to hear what he has found. But first, the news. Uber is launching what they call a urgent investigation uh, into claims that were brought up by a former employee who left and she wrote a uh, very popular blog post about her very strange year at Uber. Uh, if uh, if you have not read it, I believe her name is Susan Fowler. Uh, you should definitely look it up uh, because it is a just a staggeringly odd read. I mean, I think it starts with one of her first uh, experiences was talking to her new manager in the unit that she had really wanted to 
work in. And when she got there, I think some of her first conversations with her manager uh, on uh, online chat were about his open relationship and how he was having trouble finding women to sleep with. <laughs> and then that seemed to set the tone for a very strange year of frequent kind of uh, sexually uncomfortable and very harassing uh, work environment. And uh, so she came forward with all this. And then very quickly, it caught fire across the tech community. Uber, of course, uh, is fresh from its own uh you know, beating uh, from the uh, delete Uber movement uh, that came about uh, during the the backlash to Trump's travel ban uh, and their role, the CEO's role on a advisory committee. So not the best time uh, for Uber to be catching yet another controversy. Uh, they are attempting to uh, call for an investigation. And this is <laughs> this is a VIP investigation. If, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's uh, staggering. They, they've got Eric Holder, the former attorney general, is going to be leading the internal investigation. Ariana Huff Huffington is going to be uh, one of the one of the main people involved because she is on the board of Uber. Uh, so th- this is like some kind of weird star powered uh, investigation. But I think they're trying to show that they are taking these uh, accusations very seriously. Uh, Christina, you were following this uh, as soon as it, it all broke. I think you and I both kind of read that blog post when it was first starting to percolate. Uh, what, what's your take on kind of what damage this did for for Uber and also how you think they're they're handling it? Uh, I think they're trying to handle it as best as a corporation can when it's very clear that this was probably an issue that everyone knew about and didn't care to deal with. It's now just that, uh, you know, people are aware of it, that they're embarrassed and they're trying to fix it. Um, But no, this is this is pretty bad for them. I think that uh, when it's clear that, you know, your company doesn't seem to care about its employees, that's that sucks. That is very, very bad for your brand. Yeah, the, the um, you know, the, it's hard to believe. So, so the uh, Travis Kalanick, uh, the uh, CEO, has been basically saying, I, I, you know, acting, I mean, I, whether you believe him or not, he's saying that he's uh, never heard of any of this, that it's all abhorrent to him. Uh, he said he tweeted almost immediately after the blog post started circulating around. He said, what's described here is abhorrent and against everything we believe in. Anyone who behaves this way and thinks it's OK will be fired. And I think there's just a lot of healthy skepticism because the the type of uh, sexual harassment that she's describing and just kind of hostile work environment, it frequently involved in her allegations, frequently involved HR uh, and their failure to respond. It described this culture where somewhat ironically, Uber was trying to step up its uh its involvement of women within its its ranks uh, as they were depleting and women were leaving. She made a comment, I believe, where she said 25% of the employees were women when she got there, and when she left, it was 6%. Uh, so it shows how how quickly and precipitously uh, that, that came undone uh, in terms of whether or not women wanted to stay there. Uh, but, you know, they basically described that uh, you could get a positive review, uh, work review, and then if you tried to transfer into another department, your department manager would say, no, she's, she's not good enough to transfer she's not very good and then she would ask why not and it was basically uh according to this because they wanted to cling to what few women they had in their department uh, so this was a a kind of you know archetype of a a systemic uh failure of female employee you know a, of a company against female employees uh and so it's hard to believe the ceo is completely surprised uh charles what's the backlash been like in social and has uber's attempt at uh launching this investigation has it done anything to kind of help stem the renewed delete uber push 
I don't I don't think so. I think that the delete Uber push from um, Travis's Trump stuff from a few weeks ago did a, did a lot of the damage. And so then when this story broke, everything on the social was just sort of like not surprised. Glad I already deleted that app. Um, I, I was expecting to see a lot of other people in the industry sort of start sharing their stories, because to me, it seems like there's no ways that an environment like this is really um, just singular to, to Uber, seeing as how you know, Uber didn't create sort of the system of engineering teams and HR escalation and stuff that they didn't invent that process. And it, and it feels like, you know, probably I thought I'd see a lot more people stepping forward, sharing their stories of the exact same type of treatment at, at other Silicon Valley um, places. But I didn't see that as much. And maybe that's just because it seemed just like, like an exhausting and horrible experience that like if you were able to escape that somehow, like um, this writer was that. You know, it even took her a while to to really put it all down in paper and want to bring it up. Um, well, it's not just that. It's also that, like, if you've experienced something like that, uh, especially with a corporation of that size, you don't want to be uh, marked as an employee that's difficult. And so, like, if you're sharing this story on on social media, I think... I think people are fearful of having that negatively impact their careers. You know, she waited until she was at another company and like comfortably and safely there to be able to put this story out in the world. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's also a, that was a, sort of a key tenet of the thing, right? It was like somebody had all these perfect scores, never had a review thing, but just like some random red flag existed that said you're a problem employee. And there was no way to argue that or get you know, any sort of facts on that or have it be changed. So I think that makes sense. Christina, what do you think is the, you know, what's fascinating about Uber is that they have almost achieved that coveted status of being synonymous with their product, despite being in a very competitive set. You know, you say you're going to Uber something uh, and that's what so many brands and startups aspire to. I mean, is their brand in danger or, I mean, it, Lyft has always been that kind of, uh, not, not quite right behind them, but a valid competitor. Uh, you know, where do you think Uber's going to be a year from now in terms of their brand standing? Well, I, th- I think for a lot of startups, and Uber is probably one of many that has this same problem, they just want to hit growth targets. Um, and for Uber in this particular instance, you know, their numbers are going down and they're going to want to increase those targets uh, or get to back to their like initial targets. So I think that they're going to have to spend a lot of time um, building brand loyalty back. And that's going to be a rough road uh, that will, I, I don't know if it'll work. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a rough, rough time ahead. Well, we shall see what happens with Uber, but, uh, you know, the fact that they've come up twice so visibly in the public eye in such a negative way uh, certainly does not bode well for their 2017, but we will stay on top of it. Uh, One other piece of news this week that was probably good news for 99.9% of people is that YouTube has announced they're killing off their 30-second unskippable ad unit. Uh, so, you know, this has kind of been a, a standard of advertising for a long time. The the pre-roll ad as we know it uh, is the 30-second the unskippable ad. YouTube, of course, pioneered the skippable ad. 
which we have uh, talked about. It has really opened up some creativity uh, with brands like Geico, namely, uh, but uh, with, with some other brands, uh, really kind of embracing the creativity that uh, is required for a skippable, a skippable ad to keep people around. Uh, but they have announced that as of 2018, they are going to stop selling the 30-second ad. Uh, it sounds like this was largely driven by uh, mobile experience, that it's one thing to be sitting at a desktop, watching long-form videos, and sitting through a 30-second ad in the way that you would on TV. It's another thing to be trying to watch a short video on your phone and have to sit through a 30-second ad. And this is something uh, we, we've gone through of just trying to embed YouTube clips sometimes that have pre-roll ads on them. And no one wants to watch an ad just to watch an ad. Uh, and Tim, do you think this is going to have much of an impact? I mean, in the sense, it, this it's not quite like TV announcing that they're going to stop running 30-second ads. But the 30-second pre-roll is a, a pretty huge, uh, you know, component of the advertising world uh how do you think this is going to affect agencies and the the way they approach these video ad buys well they won't be able to put their 30 second spots on youtube that's that's one effect of this and and, you know make no mistake that the reason this is going away is because it doesn't work you know there's there's numbers if these things were working if a lot of people were watching them um, they'd be selling more and more of them so it's going away because it's terrible user experience it's not working and you know more and more uh, advertisers are willing to kind of experiment. You know this the six second bumper is a cool idea that they've been playing around with over at YouTube lately, and that's just a much more humane way to to kind of you know give someone an ad before the content they wanna they wanna watch. And you know I think this is a nice evolution. Uh, it will put more pressure on agencies to to create uh, you know separate uh, more targeted to YouTube or at least to other formats than television uh, commercials. And and that's going to be a challenge for them. It's going to be a heavier lift for them they can't just make a 30 second spot and throw it on youtube anymore and so but you know hopefully the creatively that'll inspire them to do interesting stuff i mean you can count on one hand the number of advertisers who've really tried to make pre-roll ads interesting and maybe this will you know add to that list who knows well, it certainly is going to make for a, a you know, a more interesting marketplace because I think a lot of these video ad players out there basically follow along with whatever YouTube does. You know, skippable ads weren't really a popular option until YouTube pioneered it and proved their effectiveness. Uh, and so while skippable ads are somewhat common online, uh, you know, especially when you get into some of these niche uh, video ad players, uh, they they certainly still love showing you a 30, sometimes even a 45 second pre-roll. Uh, so hopefully the ripple effect here will mean, well, in the short term, to Tim's point, I think it will definitely make the media, the media buys a little more complicated because you can't just say, oh, we're going to go all in and spend all this money to make a 30 second spot, but then we'll get to use it on YouTube and we'll get to use it on TV and we'll get to use it here. Uh, they're really going to have to change up their strategy for that but again to have it to have it watchable yeah i mean they can still put a 30 second ad on right that that people can skip but 99.5 percent of those people will skip it so uh, it'll be you know the onus is going to be on the agencies to really create something that's going to be engaging at a shorter length and i think i think agencies will probably rise to that challenge because they're going to know that uh the numbers just aren't going to work on these on these on the skippable format either I remember, you know, many years ago when when video ads were just coming out and there were these this research done that really showed, hey, okay, you need to have if you want to have memorability, you know, if you want to be remembered uh, with your video spots, you need to have your logo in the center. You need to do this. There were these certain kind of science had proven that there were these certain tactics and very front loading your messaging and making it really appealing in the front end. And marketers just didn't want to do it. And, And so when it was optional, they basically stuck with every tradition of 
the 30 second TV spot of just, you know, put the logo at the end. We'll build up to this punchline at the end of the thing. And we won't really make it all that compelling at the beginning, because honestly, I think the creatives making them had just, you know, they were just doing what they had always done. And so I really do think that, uh, again, the creativity we've seen with skippable ads with what uh, Geico has done uh, with uh, creating the the first round of unskippable ads, which we named our, our ad of the year a few years back and continuing to innovate. If you listen to the podcast, we feature those uh, even more recently. On, on what else they're doing with their collapsing ads. And, and I think there's no reason that every agency can't be bringing that level of creativity uh, and, and seeing this not as a problem, but as an opportunity. And Lord knows uh, 90, like I said, 90% of actual humans are going to applaud this and, and certainly are. Uh, Charles, what kind of reaction did you see when, uh, when our article about this came out? I'm going to go out on a limb and guess people were generally pretty excited. Yeah, people were pretty excited, or a lot of like that. That's obvious because we kind of focused on the the six second. Like they sort of buried the we're cutting down skippable thirties or unskippables and focusing on on six second ads. And I think the good news for ad agencies is there's a bunch of millennials who are really creative with six second videos that uh, all need jobs right now. So. Um, it, it is a little funny that, uh, you know, a month or so after they closed down Vine, everybody realized that, oh, wait, that was the perfect length for a, a video ad. Um, and, and I guess that's where Vine will live now in the form of short advertisements. Uh, that, that's, but, what, that's what a pre-roll should be, is it should just be a six-second ad that loops for infinity until you skip it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's the new skippable. So everybody gets confused. Well, let's uh, let's end on something kind of fun, kind of gross. Uh, I'll let Tim handle this one because uh, it's something that uh, that he he covered. But uh, it, revi- it revisits uh, Santa Clarita Diet, which uh, kind of made its first appearance on the public radar uh, with a, a great spot featuring Drew Barrymore that kind of introduced the show. And they've had a lot of fun with the cannibal slash undead theme of that show, but uh, maybe have finally taken it a step too far. Tim, tell us uh, what happened there. Right. So this is the digital and outdoor campaign uh, you, the, you mentioned the the spot that aired on the Golden Globes with Drew Barrymore, which was quite good. They also did these really fun um, out of home and digital spot uh, ads where they basically dressed up body parts as food dishes. And so you've got this burger that, that's basically just a heart burger, which is pretty gross. And the headline on that one is eat your heart out. And then there's a French fry container stuffed with fingers, and it says finger food on that one. Um, and then there's one with a an arm, like somebody's forearm, like wrapped up like a burrito, and the hands kind of sticking out. And, and the headline on that one was grab still and go. more appetizing than a Chipotle burrito. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Chipotle <hot> slam. <laughs> okay, sorry. Take Chipotle. them while they're down. That's where so, the air horns go. Yeah. Do them in post. <laughs> so this LA agency called And Company um, created that, uh, but then there were some overseas executions that were a little weird. So this one in the German market is is the one that we wrote about. Um, it was basically a finger that had been sliced up into like five or six different parts and uh, seasoned like a currywurst dish, uh, and it was just a horrendous visual. <laughs> I'm not sure how it made it. I'm not sure how it made it past uh, the client, but uh, I'm not sure either. Uh, we tried to reach out to And Company. They weren't uh, immediately responsive on this one. So I know they did some tailored ads for other uh, overseas markets that were, um, you know, the the idea there being that they did um, dishes that were popular in those markets. So 
I think they went to the Philippines and did a certain uh, ad, you know, with with local food there. And they did this in a number of number of markets. Uh, haven't totally confirmed that that Ann Company did this one in Germany, but um, it was it was widely reviled and quickly pulled. Uh, I think in a matter of days, they got like fifty complaints, and uh, you know, it was one of those where the obviously the whole campaign is kind of a, a balance between funny and, and gross, and uh, it's kind of probably pretty hard to to get that right all the time. And this execution um, certainly went further into gross than they wanted to. And they, <laughs> to their credit, they uh, listened to their complaints and, and pulled it down pretty quick. I mean, I, there was kids walking by this and they were just like probably, you know, horrified. Yeah, I mean, it's very like saw level of, it, it's not funny. Like, you know what I mean? You don't look at it and th- and laugh in the way that you laugh at a arm wrapped in a burrito or right. <laughs> some totally. of these others. Have you yes. guys seen the show? No, I've not is seen it, the show. It, I hear it's good. I, I tried to watch it, and the level of gore and like Drew Barrymore throwing up was too much in like the first oh, wow. ten minutes for me. So I'm not surprised by this campaign at all. Like the show is gross. <laughs> I couldn't do it. It's like offbeat gross too. Yeah, it's just it's. I've only watched the first episode, so I guess I can't judge all of it, but. I kind of have like a no zombie TV thing rule right now because we can, there's other creative stuff, but it's like, yeah, it's from the start. It's just like, like this weird suburban thing. And then it just takes this extremely gross, like almost trauma esque type type gore. Uh, if I'm dating myself here, some toxic Avengers type <laughs> things with rubbery intestines everywhere. Uh, yeah, there's also, um, in addition to the, uh, the the spots that aired on the Golden Globes, there's another digital spot with with Drew Barrymore eating the heart burger uh, in like the Carl's Jr. style, um, <laughs> which is nice. pretty bizarre. Also, um, but also funny. Like that one was funny. Like this, the, the severed fingers one was just uh, uh, tasteless, completely. My favorite part of that article was where uh, where people were saying that it was uh, anxiety inducing, where I just don't I don't know the kind of anxieties that German people have. Like I don't know if there's a fairy tale of kids getting their fingers chopped up like sausage. I just I can imagine being gross and horrifying, but just the anxiety part of it just seems to like play into some weird thing I don't understand. That'd be funny if an LA agency just didn't understand the German culture that yeah. there was some sort of folk folk myth that they tapped into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, honestly, I, d- I didn't even recognize it as currywurst since that's not something that we have in America uh, until you actually said that just now. It's like, oh, okay, it's supposed to be currywurst. I did, I did, you know, I hadn't discovered that till I actually went to Germany and and you know you see that everywhere but uh that makes a little more sense oh and they actually did food trucks where they served these (laughs) things to look made up to look like fingers which is very bizarre too yeah i'm looking at the tweet of that Uh, definitely check out the article so you can judge for yourself (laughs) uh you can just look up uh, santa clarita diet ad week uh and you'll find tim's write-up on the the ad in question and then some of the other marketing vehicles but uh, what on NPR's pop culture happy hour they uh, they certainly spoke highly of the show but they said you kind of have to get through the pilot uh, that the pilot's uh, not the best but that after that it picks up a lot of steam uh, and they said that Timothy Oliphant is really the the highlight of that show and that the way he plays that character uh, as her husband is really worth watching that's it I haven't dug into it yet but uh, would you say he's only fantastic all right, we can cut. We can cut that. We'll cut that yeah, one. Yeah, post. Just, I'm gonna. I'm gonna mark that for the editor to. Yeah. Um, all right. <laughs> so that's 
that's it for uh, our, our, you know, we like to not miss any cannibal themed marketing news. So I'm glad we could cover right all that. Wheelhouse. <laughs> we've got a, a, we're known for a niche here. Uh, so let's move on to my favorite part of the show, which is ads worth watching. Tim, each week you gather up the ads that are actually worth taking time to watch, uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. What have you got for us this week? Well, I'm actually excited to say we've got a really great spot to talk about this week. You know, it was a bit of a slow January, and uh, the Super Bowl was kind of less than uh, impressive in many ways. Um, But The Atlantic released this short film last week uh, through Widening Kennedy that was really, really cool. I think it's it's one of my favorite ads of the year so far, and it stars Michael K. Williams, who is the great actor who played Omar on The Wire. He also played Chalky White in Boardwalk Empire. And basically, it's a branding spot for the Atlantic, and it's it's uh, it's sort of a short scene. It's about a three minute scene, and it's called "Am I Typecast?" And it has Williams uh, debating himself, kind of talking to himself, and he's doing so quite literally. There's four versions of him in the room, and they're all having this conversation about whether uh, Williams' career choices were really his, or whether he's actually been typecast all along, and he's just been playing to type. and And uh, it's really fascinating, really well written. You know, he think maybe he thinks he's free to make his own choices, but maybe he's not free and I just I loved the whole I loved everything about this ad it really was uh, a great way to hit first of all on a lot of really relevant questions um, which of course the Atlantic is kind of pitching itself as a way of, of finding answers to for example you know, how do you know the truth of any situation today in this you know era of fake news? Um, you know, how how tightly should you hold on to your own opinions? You know, considering how divided that the country is, and then there's also this really interesting um, kind of racial commentary uh, in this film too. Uh, Williams, of course, is a black actor, and at one point he says to himself, um, "You think you could play a president?" You know, because Williams is known for playing gangsters, and he says, "Yeah, of course I could." And then another version of him says, um, "I think we've seen the last black president." for a while and the whole kind of scene kind of comes to a stop for a few seconds and it's just a really I don't know it's just so layered it's, it's really well written um, the lead writer was a guy named Brock Kirby who's a freelancer uh, does a lot of work with Widening Kennedy uh, but I, I was told that Williams really took the script and, and added a lot to it this is a, you know this is an actor who has so much magnetism and, and personality and it's just a joy to watch it. I think I've watched it like 10 times since it, since uh, we wrote about it. Uh, it was also directed by David Shane, who is, uh, of course, from O Positive Films. And he's got such a great history in commercials, too. He did you know, Bud Light Swear Jar going back a few years. Uh, he also did HBO's Awkward Family Viewing uh, series of really fun commercials from a couple years ago. Uh, so I think it was really just a, you know, you had a, a client who was up, up for this, had, had a cool idea. Uh, the whole campaign, I think, is called um, Question Your Answers, which is kind of pretzel-like, but kind of cool also. Uh, but just bringing the Atlanta, Atlantic together with Widening Kennedy, together with Michael K. Williams, um, together with David Shane, they really pulled off something really special here. And like I said, it's one of my favorite ads of the year so far. And if you haven't watched it, you need to. Yeah, let's uh, let's listen to a little bit of that one. I think you're gonna always be playing some version of Mike, gangster Mike, old timer gangster Mike, Southern gangster Mike. But I'm not a gangster. Everyone that knows me knows that. Self-denying gangster Mike. Look, I picked these roles. Me, I, I made this path for myself. Did you? Yeah, did you? 
I, I guess my question for you is, you know, right now th- th- we are in this kind of resurgent time for, uh, you know, left-leaning publications and those that are openly challenging Trump are really surging in subscriptions and popularity, visibility, uh, you know, which is kind of a, a, a nice bright side for, for those who aren't happy with the new administration. But do you think that this spot and this effort really separates the Atlantic from all your other options, your Mother Joneses and and the New Yorker and every other publication? I mean, does it carve out an identity specific to the Atlantic? Well, it's not a, it's not a really hard sell, obviously. Um, it's more of just a, you know, a, a really engaging scene. So that's that's number one. It's super engaging. I think it's it's gotten a lot of uh, play among a lot of people. But also at the very end of it, um, the, the Tanasi Coates, um, My President Was Black uh, cover of the Atlantic was shown in the final shot and I really thought that pulled this whole film together and it really kind of subtly said like we're talking about these things that matter today and um, you mentioned Trump you know I think Vanity Fair and the New York Times have both you know kind of explicitly come out and said things about Trump in their marketing like you should like remember when Trump said he hated the hated Vanity Fair or whatever a month or two ago Vanity Fair like ran ads with that quote in it for a little while and then the the Times has done something very similar lately saying you know the facts are important that's why you need to subscribe to us this was a whole different uh, way of going about it it's much more subtle it's it's more of a branding you know a, a big picture branding play I think and um could it could it maybe have distinguished the Atlantic specifically a little more? I think it, maybe it could have, but then it becomes a totally different film. And I, I really love this film, and I, I'm glad they made it. And I was happy for the for the soft sell on this. It's one of the rare ads that like f- friends of mine texted me about it, and they were like, "Have you seen this?" course I have because we write about these things but it was it was something that touched people in an honest way yeah it's got a really nice um theatrical theatrical quality to it you know the whole thing felt like a complete scene and it really has a beginning middle and an end and you know I said the writing was good I mean I haven't seen anything as well written as this in in advertising in, in quite a while yeah, also, it, it, like, great for the freelancer to be like, oh, hey, that, like, one widened Kennedy spot that people are loving did it. <laughs> I, you know, it, it was nice to see, too. We don't get, see a lot of really high-quality ads for publications or for news outlets or even for, you know, TV networks. Uh, this one d- definitely harkened back to me, although very different stylistically and tonally. Uh, but, you know, the, the Guardian's Three Little Pigs ad, which is one of the, you know, I think we named that ad of the year, right, Tim? We did, yeah, 2012. And, you know, that was an example of how you can really build an incredible campaign around, uh, you know, a publication. Uh, and I, I remember kind of hoping that that would start this renaissance in, in marketing for news outlets, media outlets. Uh, and I, I don't think it did. Um, but it's great to see something like this come around, just bring that level of quality back to it. Yeah, there's not a huge number of, of famous campaigns for journalistic places, but there are, I think, a disproportionate number of, of high quality campaigns. For example, you know, the the the, uh, the Economist has had wonderful, wonderful 
local advertising going back many, many years. Um, you know, we're doing this video series now called Best Ads Ever, and several people have mentioned The Independent, the, the British newspaper The Independent. They did a spot in 1998 called Litany that I think at least three people have mentioned as one of their three favorite ads. You mentioned The Guardian spot from 2012. I mean, it's it's you know it's cheating in a way because you don't you're not having to sell like a package goods you know whatever it is you're you're selling kind of current events which i think is easier when it comes to the storytelling to do that um but you know when it's done well it's uh it's wonderful and and this is i think this is my favorite out of the year so far and i think um I'd, i'd love to see more from from journalistic outfits well, I mean, and I guess that was my point is that, uh, you know, asking about whether it really separates the Atlantic is that news and information and perspectives even have become so commoditized uh, that it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where the thing I get maddest about is when people share articles. And even if I agree with the headline, if it's from some place that, you know, just is not reputable, is not, doesn't actually have any depth, they just know how to write a headline that's going to make people share it because it, it corresponds with your worldview. And the Atlantic is certainly if anything, guilty of going the other direction. They write these incredible, very long, very thought-provoking pieces and then put kind of, uh, you know, headlines on it that, that are a little too inscrutable sometimes. Uh, so well, I love that, though. I like the subtlety of that. Like, like right now, it, uh, the cultural conversation is why you should question someone else. And this whole campaign is about how you should question yourself. And, you know, that's, that's a point of difference, I think, that, that people probably recognize Absolutely. Well, tell us, uh, tell us about uh, what else you got this week. Well, on, on a completely different uh, level, we've got this really fun campaign by TBWA uh, Rod, which is um, their Lebanon office, um, and it's for an internet provider called Connect Internet. And you know, the brief for this campaign was really simple. It's just you need better, faster internet. You know, it's a, it's a it's a brief we've seen you know, a hundred times before. But I love the creative idea here, which was to have people act out um, internet fads that were really hot a couple of years ago, uh, kind of as a metaphor for having slow internet. Um, so in one of the ads, there's two ads. In one of them, um, a guy does the ice bucket challenge. And in another one, um, a group of people do the Harlem Shake. And the, you know, I love these because they go on for a while. They go on for like a minute. And uh, there's an on-screen super at the end that says, uh, don't be the last to get it. And it's, you know, obviously it's high Hyperbolic. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's just such a delightful way to illustrate such a common advertising message in a fresh way. And yeah, I loved it. It's going to be, uh, it'll be at least a bronze winner in Cannes. You heard it here first. I think the best part is if you look closely is uh, the subtitles because it's all in, in Lebanese. And, and I don't know if they said it was just indigenous people. That's kind of a weird word to use. They said they just found like local Lebanese people to work on it. Yeah, they were like unscripted or they they just found these guys in the countryside. But then the the guy at the end of the ice bucket challenge just starts like going off and like just screaming a bunch of profanity and talking about challenging nature and it's just (laughs) like it gets gets into Borat level without having to write it and I appreciated that aspect. (laughs) All right. And what else do you have for us for ads worth watching? Uh, so lastly, um, I wanted to talk about Colenso BBDO's follow-up to Brutroleum, um, which was for DB Breweries. Now, this is a New Zealand client, New Zealand agency. And they had that huge hit, um, I think it was two years ago, with this campaign, Brutroleum, which basically uh, it took the, uh, the yeast left over from the brewing process, and they turned it into a clean-burning, uh, conflict-free f- uh, biofuel. And so basically they could, they could uh, tell, tell their consumers, and in a sense, 
sense they were right that, that they could save the world by drinking more beer. So because they basically you know they took this the the, uh, the extras from the brewing process and, and did an environmental thing with it. So this campaign won so many major awards. It won an outdoor Grand Prix at Cannes. That was just the tip of the iceberg. It won slew of awards last year, and uh, this week we got the encore. And it's it's also an environmental campaign. Same same agency, uh, and it's uh, basically they they built a fleet of machines that um, if you put the your empty glass bottle into it, it will grind it down into a sand substitute, uh, which will be used to save the the pristine beaches in New Zealand. Apparently, uh, sand is in great demand in, in construction and some other industries. And uh, the, the, this client says that two thirds of the world's beaches are, are retreating because of the demand for sand and sand's being hauled away. And so uh, they've also got some signed contracts with some pretty big um, construction companies, I think, in New Zealand who have signed on for a couple of years to 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 use the sand, um, you know, in their in their projects. So I don't know if it's quite the world beating idea that that Brutroleum was, but it's definitely um, a, an interesting and fun way to, to stay on brand. And, and these machines, I think, will be in bars here and there around the, around the country, and uh, that, that'll also add to the the branding element of this. So it's pretty cool work. Uh, I, I like that it's uh, essentially just a, a really clever take on, uh, hey, maybe recycle those glass bottles. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The uh, I, I remember uh, I covered a big recycling uh, controversy once. It was when people realized that uh, the local recycling plant uh, where I lived was dumping all of the green and clear glass into the landfill. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, that's an easy, again, if you just see the headline, uh, it's very easy to freak out about that. But I actually learned a lot in the process of reporting on that, that, uh, you know, that, that it's recycling is all about demand. And if there is no demand, there is no recycling. You know, anything that there is not a buyer for uh, just gets thrown in the trash. And so, you know, you you try your best, but like basically they said, you know, how many breweries can you name that use green bottles or clear bottles? They have more than they need. Like they, they don't need recycled. You know, they, there's there's not a high demand. So brown glass there was, uh, but there wasn't. You know, Rolling Rock and whoever else Heineken had had plenty. There, there is there is a brewing reason for for green versus brown bottles, uh, so well, maybe that has something. You'd do I need to brown, elaborate? Right? Yeah, brown. So brown yeah. cuts down on UV rays. UV yeah. rays can skunk beer. I can go on for days about this, right? Uh, oh, so I, I guess that makes sense. That uh, I mean, we, we want to talk about the DB export. They invented some. Okay, well, um, we'll move on. I mean, what I love about this, obviously, is that it's just it's more than advertising. But on top of that, it, it creates the advertising. So what was so great about petroleum? Okay, so they made this biofuel. I don't know the scale of the biofuel. I don't think it's it's not being used the world over. Obviously, I think they've made certain amount of thousands of gallons of it but what it allowed them to do was make billboards that said save the world by drinking our beer and that was really the genius of this it wasn't really just that they went beyond advertising it's they circled back to the advertising and that's what this will do as well with the with the machines and they got trucks saying save our beaches and you know it's just this it's this awesome hilarious way of making people feel good about drinking which uh you know all beer advertising of course does but this does it in in a fun new way all right. Well, thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up the ads worth watching. And now we are ready to move on to our big discussion of the week. 
this week uh, marked the mobile issue for Adweek, this uh, annual report we do, kind of rounding up uh, what's happening in the mobile industry, whether it's in advertising, in social platforms, uh, content, and devices. Uh, so this week, uh, unfortunately, Chris Heine, our tech editor uh, who worked so hard on this package, couldn't be with us today. So, uh, But I did want to kind of talk about several of the stories he worked on and his team put together this week. And I encourage everyone to go check it out. If you go to adweek.com, uh, within a few, you know, within a week or so of, of listening to this podcast, uh, you can find a special section on the homepage that says the mobile issue, or you can just look around for Adweek mobile issue on Google. But uh, our cover story was really a, a fun read. It was an interview with the CEO of Niantic uh, that creates Pokemon Go, uh, and basically talking about how obviously they had spectacular growth uh, within the first month. This explosive out of the gate uh, popularity of the app really became a, a, a fad uh, in a way that very few things uh, have ever achieved. And then it also tapered off pretty quickly uh, with a lot of people just kind of moving on. The game didn't add a whole lot. There wasn't a lot of new updates, new features, and I think that was kind of where they suffered. But for those of us, and I do mean us because I have stayed loyal to Pokemon, uh, mostly because of my kids, but I do enjoy playing it and uh, using it, with, especially when I'm in New York. But those of us who've stuck with it have seen that they've made steady improvements. But then most notably, about two months ago or so, they rolled in uh, some interesting brand integrations. So Starbucks basically agreed to make every Starbucks location a Pokestop, uh, which is awesome if, like me, you live very close to a Starbucks. Uh, and they even created a Pokemon Frappuccino. And all of this was long after the popularity, the, that big spike in popularity had, had started to, to come off. So, you know, good on them for continuing to have faith in the app, even after it had lost its big cultural zeitgeist moment. Uh, Sprint also really became a big supporter. They turned uh, a lot of the Sprint locations, the Sprint stores into Pokestops and said that that helped drive a lot of foot traffic into their stores. Uh, so they're uh, you know, trying to find more of these integrations where I can say as, as someone who uses it, they're very uh, inoffensive. You, know, you don't suffer for having an ad in there. You don't get upset about it because it's interwoven into the gameplay. Charles, have you kept up with Pokemon or did you drop it like like most folks uh, i dropped it like most folks i have friends that still play so i see them i even have one that has like the, the official pokemon watch so we make fun of him a little for that but he seems <laughs> to enjoy it um yeah i i don't to be honest it's just some of my diehard nintendo friends that keep it up and i think that they're just obsessed with the grind uh, so i don't know if uh, any of the, the branding or integration stuff really is comes to sort of something that they think about or even interact with. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that if they can maintain sort of like a, a higher, more mainstream level of, of interest uh, or even incentivize, incentivize people to come back uh, with free Frappuccinos, cheap Frappuccinos. I want to know if it'll pick up popularity again in the summer because it launched in the summer. Everyone wanted to be outside. You were walking around. You could like take in the nice sunshine and you know uh, catch some Pokemon. But then it got to be cold, and I don't want to go and walk around and find stupid little Pokemon. What the the things. Yeah, they're they're called Pokemons. They're called Pokemons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good point. Kids are kids have been back in school, so when they're out, 
uh, roaming the streets. Um, they might be there. Yeah. That the first water. week was scary. They were oh, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, people were like abandoning their cars on Fifth Avenue to to run into Central Park when when rare Pokemon would appear. And I I don't know. It was kind of fascinating to watch it unfold. Uh, I think by not I don't live in in a major city. So I think for me, it was easier to kind of uh, take my time and enjoy it more long term because it's not something I can easily play every day uh, because you kind of have to have that concentration. But what was interesting in our interview uh, on in our cover story is that he basically said that it was very intentional how patient they were about integrating advertisers, integrating sponsors. Uh, and they certainly could have made a very fast cash grab during that and, and probably would have made a killing, uh, but then have burned out even faster. Uh, and they could have tried adding a bunch of features, but instead they took more of a, a Twitter approach. I mean, not to make a perfect uh, parallel, but um, you know, Twitter was very patient about adding features uh, from day one. And they had competitors who came along and said, we're like Twitter, but we have photos and we have video and we have all this and all those competitors died because they tried to do too much too quickly so pokemon uh, just as our issue was about to come out uh they finally unveiled their first major update uh in the you know the almost year since it's been out uh which added something like 80 new pokemon uh which is a, a huge deal i mean there were only 150 uh in the in the first round and that's all there were for a long time and uh so you know people got kind of tired of seeing the same critters everywhere you went and uh, now there's so many that I, I have no idea what they are. My kids are playing it like crazy and catching stuff. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I don't, I, we've tried to pin them down on numbers. They've reportedly made over a billion dollars in revenue through the, uh, through the app. Uh, but, uh, you know, through in-app purchases. And they say that that is the major source of their revenue. That it's not these sponsor deals, uh, but it has been largely just in-app purchases. Uh, but they wouldn't comment on those numbers, uh, which are kind of been generated by outside sources. So, uh, you know, but couldn't really pin them down on, on the anything firm, but uh, it's very clear that they feel they are playing a long game. Well, obviously, our mobile issue was not solely dedicated to Pokemon, uh, although I do recommend reading our interview with the Niantic CEO. Uh, we also had a list of 15 of kind of the most influential mobile innovators uh, who are shaping the future of mobile ads. Uh, so this is uh, 15 people. Some are multiple from one company. Some are just, uh, you know, individuals. Uh, but I uh, just want to call out a few that are kind of interesting. Uh, Fiji Simo, if I'm pronouncing her name right, she's uh, 31 years old, uh, director of product at Facebook. And uh, she really took their mobile ad business from basically nothing to uh, $7.3 billion uh, last quarter. Uh, so obviously has become the dominant driving force in the revenue business for Facebook. Uh, and so, you know, fascinating read about uh, how she has kind of been at the center of, uh, of you know, the, th- this real game-changing moment for Facebook. Uh, Peter Sellis, uh, who's 33, he's the director of revenue product for Snapchat and really seen as the driving force behind Snap ads. I think if, if you know, for those who haven't used Snapchat, uh, I find the, the ad units to really be, like no ad unit is is nice <laughs> you know I'm, I'm like common sense enough to know that but they're nice like they're they they work the way you think they would work you can skip them the way that your body wants to skip them it's just they seem to respond much more naturally uh, it, you know I, I am, am i right there charles i mean do you feel that snap has kind of figured out the ad unit in a way that a lot of platforms haven't they've done it better certainly and i, I don't know how much 
in-house control they still take and if I know that they work with a lot of their partners to create you know content specifically for Snapchat and so that it sort of works in a seamless environment um, you know some I think often I only see them when I'm looking at Snapchat discover because I just don't follow too many individuals and so inside that framework they they feel like most other ads but um, they don't take you out of the experience which I think is the main problem with almost all mobile ads um, and hopefully they'll keep it up. I remember years ago when when Tumblr launched their ad platform that uh, the, the CEO literally approved every single ad that showed up in the Tumblr radar on uh, on the desktop, um, which at the time felt as an advertiser was really onious and, and kind of ridiculous that it was going all the way to CEO. But I think they were at that point before Yahoo bought them really trying to be careful about the community and, and their users. Um, and I think Snapchat's taken that same same route, but with the new IPO and needing more revenue and more advertisers, um, I'd expect to see the quality and start to dip and the experience to, to feel less Snapchat and more just like what we've come to expect from ads. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Instagram tries to steal him because they've already stolen so many of Snapchat's special things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Facebook's got plenty of money to, to do it. Uh, well, we will come back to Snapchat and Instagram and their, their kind of increasing rivalry in just a minute. Uh, but I uh, also want to mention Jonathan Mildenhall, uh, who's uh, a, a practically a senior citizen compared to some of these young folks. He's 49, uh, but he's the CMO of Airbnb. Uh, and Jonathan, like I always joke, it's hard to do any list uh, in our the industries we cover without including Jonathan on them uh, because he just seems to really Airbnb just has their their marketing game figured out whether it's in content and partnerships and advertising and you know across the board they are just really uh, kind of crushing it um, and, you know, there was a quote in our piece where he says, our mantra is simple, community-driven, mobile-first, social by design. Uh, and so, obviously, that is why uh, w- he is being honored in our list of mobile innovators. Uh, I-, I can definitely say that Airbnb, I actually love their tablet interface. is kind of my favorite way to browse Airbnbs. But their phone interface is great, the desktop interface. But it is one where, honestly, the mobile, the tablet and mobile interface are, it's one of the few sites where I would w- rather be using those devices than using a desktop. I I just enjoy that browsing experience uh, a lot more than I do. Uh, Christina, what's what's your take on Airbnb and Jonathan's standing kind of within the marketing industry right now? Well, it's funny that you asked that. I was actually talking to someone at Zambezi this morning um, about how in the tech space, all, all of the all of the tech brands are trying to play catch up to what Jonathan Mildenhall has been able to do with Airbnb because the way that he seems to consider what your user experience is as well as, um, you know, what the marketing language of the of the app is um, or of the company is uh, really, really seems to have made an impact he was also our, uh, one of our brand genius uh, recipients last year, so he's on a roll at least uh, within our office. Yeah, what what is the ad week equivalent of, of the EGOT? You know, like we we need. That's right. Yeah, he needs to make an ad of the year and something else. <laughs> he needs to uh, he needs to be on the the power uh, you know the power one hundred power fifty. Oh, I should know our own list. <laughs> would, would you say open invitation to the ad week podcast? Am I overstepping right now? My first time. Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll let him on. 
Okay. We'll uh, we'll track. It's also nice to see the AKQA guys on uh, in the mobile innovators too, because they've, you know, like uh, that they're doing some really interesting stuff in mobile. Um, they've got a lot of clients for whom you know mobility is kind of the whole point. They, they've got Delta, they've got Verizon, they've got uh, you know they've got Universal Orlando, like these kind of travel uh, destin you know destination telecom clients. Um, you know, really rely on the power of mobility to to be such a huge part of their brand. And, and AKQA is doing some really cool stuff with all those clients, uh, along with some cool mobile VR and some other stuff. So it was nice to see um, David Clark, John Ryling, and Peter Lund on this list. Um, so that that is definitely check out our, our list of uh, mobile innovators uh, on adweek.com. The uh, other thing I want to talk about is just kind of some open-ended questions for the panel while we've got everybody here. I feel like right now one of the biggest questions that we keep addressing uh, in the newsroom and in our kind of day-to-day as social nerds is Snapchat versus Instagram. Yeah, so we brought this up recently uh, or, you know, just a few minutes ago in the podcast. But I'm curious. So, Charles, while we have you here as the gatekeeper of all things social for Adweek, what's your take on this? It does feel like the the coolness of Snapchat, the the special explosion of it, is is dwindling. Although they're still growing. But what's your take on on kind of the state of Snapchat? I think that they're at a crossroads. I, I think that they've gone to the point where you know they talk about their camera company, but they started as a disappearing message social network, and now they seem to be a. a publishing platform where you can reach the best place to reach millennials um, if, if you believe the marketing. Um, but all that adds up to things that other people are doing at the same time. And, and clearly Facebook and Instagram is coming and taking the best things that Snapchat did and, and for the most part is doing them better now. Um, the Instagram stories generally feel and seem better than Snapchat stories. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I don't know about, I think people are kind of over disappearing messages at this point as well. Like, I, I think that there was overestimate how much stuff people were sending that they needed to not be saved. Um, so, you know, I think that if they focus on the camera and the publishing, that's probably where they're going to see their growth in their, in their user base. I think that spectacles is actually still a pretty unique experience and viewing spectacle videos in Snapchat, um, is cool. And they give a unique point of view that so far no other mobile video is doing right now. Um, and, and so it's smart that just this past week they've released them wide to everybody because I, I, they need to ramp that up and they need to get their technology out there and in more people's hands. Um, otherwise, they're going to keep hemorrhaging users to Instagram. And I know a lot of influencers, influencers are already like double their posting on Snapchat and Instagram stories right now. And, and uh, um, you know, there's a, a medium piece that went around yesterday about, you know, why everybody's leaving Snapchat. And anecdotally, this person just over the past few months has seen their their views drop by about 50 percent. Um, across all their their stories so you know i think i think they have to figure something out or or they could risk you know flatlining like twitter or really spiraling down the drain like tumblr christina uh are are you an active snapchat user i can't remember off the top of my head i only use snapchat to watch kelly oxford's videos that's the only reason her talking about mcdonald's and crystals is amusing to me um i assume she also talks about feminism i mean like a little bit but it's more just like her watching reality bites or you know praising oprah um 
which is entertaining. But no, I mean, I don't like Snapchat. I don't like the use, the way that the app is put together. It's a weird maze, and it it seems like it's difficult to use on purpose to keep out the olds. But uh, you know, yeah, whatever. It's, it's not as hostile as it used to be, but it still is. It's, it's, it's just it's, bad. It's um, and I don't. I I think most people don't care about like getting a daily mail thing in between the, the, what they're watching. Eh. eh, is how I feel about about Snapchat. <laughs> All right. Um, the other th- the other fun story we had in our mobile issue that I, I I really enjoyed reading because this is one I still scratch my head about all these years later is the iPad. So you know the iPad has certainly become a mainstream device. Uh, they've sold, according to our story, three hundred forty million of them, which is no small number. But my thing with uh, with an iPad and with tablets, I guess, in general, is for a long time I kept saying, when I feel I need one, I'll get one, but I'm not going to get one just to discover why I need one. You know, does that make sense? Like, you know, that it just felt like you would have to get one to even figure out why you would ever need one. There was no use case that I felt. Uh, whereas something like the Amazon Echo or the Google Home, I think, oh, cool, I could use something to like you know, talk to while I'm cooking and my hands are gross or to, to do voice. Like I get it. Uh, But the iPad, they're cool. Once you have one, you, you, you certainly make use of them, but our story basically talked about how they, they never caught on. They never hit not, not mainstream sales. They did fine on sales. They never hit mainstream usage in the way that Steve jobs really uh, predicted in his, in his unveiling. It was the last product he unveiled in his lifetime. And he really saw it being this complete, life-changing thing and it's it's fine you know it's a it's a it's a good device it's a very expensive device um and uh you know the point of robert clara our colleague who wrote wrote this piece and he said that it has in the end the biggest change that it's made is to retail uh you know and anyone who goes to coffee shops or to donut shops or any kind of boutique artisanal uh location you know that everyone's checkout register is now an iPad. Uh, the iPads are such a big part of the purchasing and the retail and the shopping experience. Uh, so I thought that, I, I mean, are any of you using a tablet consistently or loyally? I use one at home, you know, when, when, uh, when I'm sitting down kind of in the evening, it's just nicer to have a larger screen really is the, the only reason I use, it. I use an older generation iPad as well. So I'm sure they've gone on, they've gotten a lot better. People are going to hate me for this, but I use it as like a second screen to watch things while I'm like playing Xbox or maybe watching more than one sporting event at the same time. It's a nice, good size. Hey, <laughs> I'm the worst. <laughs> it's ah, I think that I makes total you, sense. That's <laughs> um, good. I think, uh, you know, I was always really excited about the iPad Pro because it seemed like the things that they want an iPad to do, it could never replace a computer. So the iPad Pro kind of got you closer there but there's been no worthwhile mark they're getting destroyed in marketing by microsoft who essentially makes the same device with probably not as good hardware but microsoft can literally make claims like i can draw in photoshop right on the thing and apple can't do that and it's like you you can do that on the ipad pro but nobody (laughs) nobody knows that they're just getting (laughs) like it's so weird that they just kind of you know abandoned that that market to to microsoft or maybe I mean, it's Apple, so I'm sure they have something up their sleeve at some point, but I, I don't know why they aren't pushing, uh, you know, the, the performance aspect or the uh, design aspect of their their obviously more expensive iPads um, like the way Microsoft is. 
Yeah, I remember these trend stories a few years ago of like, are computers going to go away? Are tablets going to be the only computers? And I remember seeing a quote that that's not probably literally accurate, but I think it's it's generally got the right idea, which is as long as there are spreadsheets, that there will be computers. You know, that you just cannot, if your job is an accountant or someone who just deals with numbers every day, your uh, a tablet won't do it. And again, that's not literally true. And this is, yeah, sure, you can find a workaround for spreadsheets. But I think that idea that there is just always a certain type of precision that tablets have not reached. And we've had enough years now that I think if they were going to reach it, they would have. But just mounting it onto a thing and turning it into a, a kind of makeshift laptop so that you can have a mouse or these kind of precise instrumentation is not enough. You know, the, at that point, you might as well just have a laptop. Yeah. Is it uh, a tablet or is it a laptop with a touchscreen? Yeah. The, it's uh, a baby TV. Like, that's how most people use it, yeah. just to, like, watch Netflix in bed. Yeah, that's true. It's a convenient Netflix device. And, uh, and, and I mean, you mentioned in the article, too, it, it also uh, helped sort of jumpstart the uh, ebook. Beyond beyond Kindle, I think I think that iPads got a lot more people reading uh, reading books on devices. Not magazines, <laughs> didn't work. That's true. They can't figure it out, right? Because the layout, anything that's just text, they can. But anything that takes design or layout is uh, is really hard to translate. I think iPad did not save the magazine business. Trump might. Yeah, Trump. Not the iPad. Trump did. I thought Adweek was saving the magazine business. That's what I was told. All oh, right. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's good. in our it's in our literature. Gotcha. Um, well, that is, uh, we, have, we have burned all of our time today. Certainly lots more we could be talking about with mobile, uh, but, uh, you know, it's funny how it comes up a lot. So we will be hitting that in future, uh, a lot of these topics in future episodes. Uh, but uh, for now, don't forget, you can drop us an email. We love hearing from you. Our email is podcast at adweek.com. It's podcast at adweek.com. And ask us a question. Let us know what's on your mind. Let us know your thoughts on Snapchat versus Instagram, whatever. And we will uh, be happy to read it if you would like on upcoming episodes speaking of upcoming we have so much stuff coming we're, we're hitting kind of a big hot period for the for our print magazine uh, where we just have tons of special features uh, coming out in the next few weeks we're doing a roundup of what we call our agencies 3.0 this is uh, agencies that have embraced kind of new models new approaches we've got our south by southwest uh, preview issue coming soon and of course our live coverage from south by uh, and we have special package coming in march about uh, atlanta as kind of a thriving hub for uh for brands and marketers and agencies and tech startups i'm actually driving to atlanta in the morning to go interview even more folks and to do some fun video uh there so uh definitely keep an eye on adweek.com and uh let, let us know if there's anything in that space you think we should be covering our theme music is by home uh this week's episode was produced by christina monlos and edited by kevin eck thank you christina thank you kevin and uh, if you have not please take a moment to go to itunes google play stitcher look at our podcast and give it a quick little rating you can just pick the number of stars you want or if you feel like leaving a longer review we would love you for that it means a lot and it helps our podcast to be discovered by new listeners uh so thank you for those who have and uh, thanks to the panel. It was great talking to you guys, and we will talk to everyone again soon. See you next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone. 
from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.